Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Novak Djokovic has come through in the historic moment once again. He is your 2021 Wimbledon champion with a four-set victory over Matteo Berrettini, and it is his 20th major title. Now tied with Federer and Nadal, the Grand Slam is intact. The Golden Slam, if he chooses to play the Olympics, is intact. The Channel Double has been accomplished, one of the hardest things to do in the sport, and ultimately a momentous occasion for Novak, and now he can build on it, I think, um, going into New York. I think if he wins the U.S. Open, I think that will be the one that will be remembered and etched in history more than Wimbledon, but uh, this would this would be the setup victory here at Wimbledon and you can't have the uh you can't go through the the ceiling without the without the setup and not to say that it's going to be easy in New York there's still a long way to go but the fact that they're all at at 20 now uh just makes for one of the most exciting things I can remember since following this sport I just can't wait for uh, for the U.S. Open, but let's get in to this Wimbledon final. And for those uh, who don't know why this video comes so late, just check out my last community post. I did explain it in that. And uh, for those of you who left comments on that, really touched me. Seriously, um, means so much to me. Uh, some of the things that that I read in the uh, the comments. It's great to know that um, I have people out there who are uh, in my corner. Seriously. Uh, so Novak wins in four sets, 6-7, dropped the first set, then went on to win the next three, 6-4, 6-4, 6-3. Uh, I want to get into the record a little bit, but I'm going to save that till the end, the the slam, the 20th slam. Uh, but I, I kind of want to talk about just what he's done this year and what he has done in the last couple years. His winning has just been incredibly consistent. You know, you look at his victories in the major finals, Medvedev. In Australia, Tsitsipas at Roland Garros after beating Nadal in the semis and now Berrettini at Wimbledon. No one win is overly impressive. The Nadal win on clay is his signature win of 2021, for sure. But if you look at the finals, no one win blows you away. But to go three for three is kind of what's special. And then if you zoom out more, he's won eight of his last 12 majors. And there's an injury and a DQ in there. The fact is, I have never seen anyone deliver on their skill set as consistently as Novak. And I believe that's all upstairs. It's just what he has in his head, in the mental department. I don't think that there's anyone who competes better. And I don't mean to say that nobody fights harder. It's not what I mean by that. I mean... Nobody fights better. This is a one-on-one -on -one sport. There's a feel here. There's a connectivity. You and your opponent. And when it comes to figuring out what you have on a given day, figuring out what your opponent has, and finding a way to win a tennis match, because there always has to be one winner, no matter what. Uh, I just don't think that there's any been anyone better than than Novak that I've ever seen at figuring out the best way to winning to win a tennis match and then doing it. And on that note, I think that Djokovic's most important battle in this Wimbledon final was against himself. I think he did feel the pressure. Thought he was tight. 
which is understandable with what was on the line historically. I thought, you know, I kind of had a feeling that at some point we were going to see this. At some point in Novak's road to equaling Nadal and Federer, at some point he was going to have that moment where the history and the the weight of what he was trying to accomplish was going to hit him. And I think it hit him in this match. So I think he was battling himself. At the same time, I think he he has a pulse on his opponent, as I was just saying. And if he felt he needed to go for more, if he felt he needed to do more, I think he just would have done it. But he understood exactly what he was up against, and he knew exactly what he needed to do. And my overall thoughts on, on this matchup is I honestly don't think that these two players are in the same tier. And I know that might sound obvious, talking about Novak Djokovic, now a 20-time slam champion versus Matteo Berrettini. Very different pedigrees here. But I think that Federer Nadal, even now Dominic Team, Daniil Medvedev, um, Stefano Tsitsipas, and Alexander Zverev, all these players at their best can challenge Djokovic in ways that I don't think Matteo Berrettini can exactly just because all of those players I just named have a certain level of completeness to their game that that Berrettini does not have. So I think that a lot of the things I pointed to in the preview were things that Novak executed strategically and tactically when it comes to exploiting a backhand, which is just not good enough uh, against Novak Djokovic and winning that second serve battle putting pressure on Berrettini with how many first serves Djokovic was able to get back in the court, uh, superior backhand, a backhand cross court consistency. But I think overall, the thing that struck me about this match was movement and just how finely tuned Djokovic's movement looked. It, it, he just looked so agile, so quick and so dynamic as a mover on this grass court in this match. And it was a contrast to Berrettini, who just doesn't quite have that movement. And I was thinking about it, and I realized movement equals freedom. Freedom to, to play the game in a way that offers you options, where Berrettini does not have freedom. All he has, to me, is, is pressure, because he has, he must dictate. He must not let the ball get onto his backhand. Um, he must not let Novak get him on the run. He must execute consistently behind his first serve because the ball is coming back so much more. It just feels to me like Berrettini, for all the incredible and overwhelming skills he has on his serve and on his forehand, he's in a pressure cooker because as soon as the match diverts not the match, as soon as a point diverts from that skill set that Berrettini has, as soon as it strays away, he's in trouble against Djokovic. And that creates so much pressure. I have to make my first serves because of the disadvantage I have on my second serve, having to hit a first ball backhand on my second serve, and how that makes it so that I can't win enough second serve points. Um... That's one example. The fact that when I get a forehand, I need to make sure that 
if I have a neutral forehand, I need to make sure that I do point-ending damage pretty quickly because if I give Djokovic a chance to move me around the court, I'm not going to win a lot of points from a defensive position. So I don't really want to be in neutral. I want to be in charge. That's a lot of pressure on every given forehand, on every neutral forehand off of especially the kind of deep balls that Novak tends to hit. Berrettini has that pressure. I must do something here. I must do something so good that Djokovic isn't going to be able to get me on the move, that Djokovic isn't going to be able to get the ball to my backhand. And that is so much to handle. That is where your errors are going to come from. And I think Berrettini, his forehand is so good that he makes it a match. And he really delivers very often. His first serve is so good that he delivers on a very regular basis. He executes those first serves and those big forehands. And he almost does it enough that this match can be competitive. But not quite. Now with 3-0 head-to-head, I thought this match was very similar to Roland Garros, actually. Uh, They're meeting in the quarterfinal. Um, Especially, you know, how Djokovic loses the one set. It's a tie break. He got tight in the set. It's almost a carbon copy here. And I just think Berrettini does all he can do here, but there's just limitations there uh, because of what Djokovic can do to him. Novak, on the other hand, where's the pressure? Because he knows that if he has to defend a little bit, he might still be able to steal the point. He knows that if Berrettini, if he's playing a neutral rally, it doesn't matter where the ball goes in in the court or what shot Berrettini gives him. He can handle it. He, he's complete. There's, there's no hole there that he needs to compensate for and go for extra and... and take extra risk in order to try to avoid some part of the game. It doesn't exist. He's comfortable everywhere. Neutral, offense, defense, backhand, forehand, slice, volley, drop shot. There's nowhere where Novak's not comfortable. There's so many places where Berrettini isn't, and he has to do certain things in his game to try to make sure that the match stays in his comfort zone. And it's unrealistic because of what Novak is able to do to get it out of his comfort zone. And to me, that's a lot about movement and just the way Djokovic can uh, can play from all different parts of the court and how he can defend and, and neutralize and execute in, in baseline rallies. Um, now let's get to some more. I want to get to some more granular tactics. Um, there is obviously the second serve battle, which I highlighted as the main reason why Berrettini was not going to be able to win the match coming in. And again, it, it kind of it wasn't as bad as Roland Garros for Berrettini, but ultimately Djokovic won fifty three percent on his on his second serve, and Matteo Berrettini won thirty eight percent of points on his second serve. And Berrettini's second serve is one of the best in men's tennis. Everyone. Like, he's winning 38%, and he's got that good a second serve. It's just Djokovic's return. It's so incredibly, incredibly (laughs) good um, that here's the stats. um, And this is courtesy of Matthew Willis. Uh, You should subscribe. He's on Substack. It's called The Racket. Uh, He does excellent work, and he's got some stats that, uh, that he's able to get. I'm not sure how, but he gets them. Um, and I'm going to, 
I'm going to use him. So this is, again, Matthew, Matthew Willis on the racket. Uh, when it comes to Berrettini, um, second serve return percentage, unreturned second serve percentage, pre-final in the six matches leading up to the final, 28%. So 28% of his second serves were unreturned. In the final, 10%. So an 18% dip. So that means, obviously, they were coming back into the court more often. But not only that, they were primarily first ball backhands, which is, as I said, kind of kind of the key. Um, because on second serves, Berrettini hit only 43% first ball forehands. So think about the difference here. Berrettini, who hits his second serve more than 100 miles per hour and generally hits body serves and was basically destroying everyone else um, with that strategy come that, you know, all tournament long. Um, not only did he not get the unreturned uh, second serves, 18% less, but he didn't even get forehands. That's how much Djokovic was on top of it. Obviously, you just saw that message. Let me get the battery pack charger. I apologize. All right. All right. Um, so basically, the, the point I'm making here, Novak's second serve returning levels above anything that Berrettini had seen. And then on Djokovic's own second serve, again, my main critique with Matteo Berrettini always has been, I've never seen him do anything strategically on the return. Just never seen it in my life. Uh, I've only seen him return one way, and I don't think it's I don't think it's great. Uh, he makes he makes it. He makes the returns in play. He just doesn't do much with it. And Djokovic will basically kick it up high to his backhand, and Berrettini never gets much on that return. And Novak can can dictate from there. And we talk about Berrettini's defensive limitations, how he's just not great when he needs to try to play from behind in a point, and that's why Djokovic wins fifty three percent. Of, of his second serve points. So, again, you have that discrepancy in the second serve battle. And it's going to, as long as that persists, until Berrettini makes that up somehow. And I think what he would need to do to make it up, I don't think he can hit his second serve any better. He just needs to improve that first ball backhand. That's the that's the only way for me. Um, I just can't think of anything else. Um, but then, obviously, also, I think he should be doing things on, on the return. He didn't take my advice. In the preview, I said, I think he should slice it or at least mix it up because I think that's the best way to bother Novak if instead of just hitting kind of a weak topspin slash flat return from above the shoulders every time, you know, try to really carve and uh, stick a slice because when you when you hit your slice from so far above the the level of the net in terms of contact point, you have a chance to really drive down and and keep that ball really really low. But he didn't do that. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about is Djokovic's net play. You know, after the Australian Open, I talked about Novak's serve. That was the story of the Australian Open for me. Novak serve. And then he won the French Open, and I talked about Novak's forehand. To me, that was uh, it was the best he'd hit his forehand in a, such a long time, and it was the reason he won the tournament, in my opinion. Well, now we get to Wimbledon, and I kind of assumed coming into the tournament that we would be talking about Novak Djokovic's serve again. Back to a quick court. Jack Draper, 
I think he served 16 aces in round one. And I'm like, okay, here we go again. We're going to have Novak Djokovic kind of have a dominant serving tournament again, just like he did in Australia. That didn't really happen. My story for Wimbledon is Djokovic's volleys. Best I've ever seen him volley. So consistent up there. So solid. Something that he has slowly but surely improved bit by bit by bit throughout his entire career, I think. And I've never seen him so comfortable up there. And I thought he hit tons of approach shots. He was 34 for 48 at net in this match. He got up there way more than Berrettini. And kind of instinctually, you'd say, okay, Berrettini's the guy who wants to attack. He wants to dictate. But, you know, Mateo... Mateo is uh, is more like, you know, he's just more comfortable trying to finish the point from the back of the court with his forehand. It's just how he's most comfortable. And Djokovic was able to approach the Berrettini backhand with great success. He was sometimes approaching the forehand too often, in my opinion, and getting burned. Um, and I just thought he should have been a little bit more stubborn and just approached the backhand a little bit more uh, rigorously. From the baseline, I understand you have to go to the forehand sometimes to open up the backhand. You can't just try to hit to the backhand every time. In the baseline rallies, I, I think that's absolutely true. But when it comes to approach shots, just hit it to the backhand every time. It's kind of my opinion against Berrettini. Uh, Djokovic didn't do that. I think he could have been even better in terms of the 34 for 48 number. But he volleyed so well. It was it was really key. Big moments in this match. Um, and then the second thing is in terms of the backhand to backhand cross-court thing. Uh, the way he dealt with the slice was generally he he was hitting over it. He found that if he sliced it, Berrettini was, was getting forehands off of it. So he was trying to just hit over it and go back cross court. And he's just a more consistent player on that cross court backhand to backhand. He won so many rallies just by being the last guy to miss. You know, Berrettini just, I don't think it's Matteo getting impatient. I really don't. It's just Matteo can't execute as many times without making a mistake compared to Novak on the backhand. So that was a key for him. Um, and those are kind of the main things for me tactically. It was obviously Djokovic being the two-way player, being able to defend, being able to steal some key points. Uh, two points come to mind, by the way, when it comes to that. Obviously, 3-2, uh, I believe, in the fourth set at 15-30, Berrettini. Looked like he surely should have had two break points there and somehow did not get them because of uh, Djokovic's beautiful scrambling and then gets up to a drop shot and hits a, a cross-court angle. Um, and then at one all, 30-all with uh, Berrettini serving, I think, in the third set, he hits this inside-out forehand that should have won the point. Djokovic hits open stance, sliding backhand, cross court, and Berrettini misses that half volley. Um, I think he he might double fault on the next ball. I'm not sure, but Djokovic gets the break there. Uh, just a couple of key points there where where Novak really stole, stole, him, stole it away with his defense, but just also the willingness to stay neutral and to not go for too much, and that's why Novak's unforced error count so low after the first set. By the way, Berrettini won the first set. He did do two things exceptionally well throughout this match. First of all, his hands are butter. He's got incredible touch, so he did really well when he got up to the drop shots. Uh, always able to do something good with that ball. And for some reason, he was not slicing in the beginning of the match. And at least he started slicing in the first set and won some some very important baseline rallies 
as soon as he started to slice, when uh, when it looked like he, he didn't start until five four, Djokovic serving for the for the set, and for the first time he got in a couple baseline rallies, finally sliced his backhand, and maybe it worked out for him that he wasn't doing it for the rest of the set because Novak was kind of like, whoa, what is this? Uh, and Berrettini got the break. But all in all, also, Djokovic was just, again, really fighting how tight he was and guiding some ground strokes instead of really hitting through and accelerating through. He reached a place, Djokovic did, where he was very comfortable um, with his kind of neutral baseline trading. And he got very comfortable just hitting those balls. I don't know that he ever got comfortable really hitting out on his forehand down the line, on his backhand down the line, um, or even his aggressive backhand cross court. But he did get the the approach shots going from the mid court on the forehand and the backhand. So that worked. Um, he just, you know, he had everything he needed to have to win. And I, I thought it was a really great performance. You know, just because it wasn't, flawless or spotless or like the Medvedev final, not every match can be like that. Not every match can be Australian Open 2021, Australian Open 2019. It, it's just, it's never going to be like that. It just, it just won't be. So I thought it was a really good performance, but ultimately he's got too much for Matteo Berrettini. He does. It's different levels. And Again, he had to battle himself here and make sure that his nerves did not sabotage his performance, but his completeness and the way he's able to work through and try different things and know exactly how much he needs was able to just guide him through this match and bring him to 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 victory uh, with some spectacular movement and the athleticism at the age of 33 just just blowing me away right now, I have to say, and the consistency and the way he competes uh, is just something that's so extremely difficult to beat right now. Let me talk about 20 real quick, and then I'll wrap things up. Um, here's what I'll say. As you guys know, I don't I don't like to make lists. I don't like to go, you know, other than pointing out the obvious of of the records and you know what what the what the facts are. I do like to point out the facts, but I I don't like to I don't like to get too into the, the the subjective listing, right? What I do like to do is point out the differences and what makes each player unique. And I think Djokovic, this does feel pretty unique in a couple of ways. I think, first of all, Djokovic went about the slam race completely differently. He dared to want it, and he chased it unapologetically. And I think that helped him. I think it's a, a champion's mentality, not that other approaches don't work as well, um, but... You know, Rafa Nadal was kind of like head down one at a time, one match at a time, one tournament at a time. I don't want to think about any of that big picture stuff. Um, for Federer, you know, I don't really know if he was clear-headed about this kind of thing. He never really, I don't think, ever explained his mentality when it come when it when it came to the record books. Um, and I don't know if that helped him. I think maybe. I think maybe he felt a little bit of, of negative pressure from it. I'm not sure. But I'm not, you know, he always stayed pretty diplomatic and never really gave much away. But Novak, I think, was very comfortable when it came to just chasing it unapologetically. And I do think that helped him. And I wonder how he got to a point where he was comfortable doing that. And I kind of go back to his childhood where he's often said failure was not an option for him. He 
he had to succeed in tennis. His family sacrificed everything. They put all their chips in the Novak Djokovic basket, and, and Novak had to deliver. Novak had to make a living out of this. There were no choices. Obviously, with, with how crazy professional sports are with injuries and stuff, it's almost a tragedy that any family ever has to do that, but they had to. And I think, again, Djokovic just conditioning himself to say, okay, this is what I'm aiming for, and I have to do it, and this is my goal, and failure is not an option. That kind of mentality, that's what he had during childhood, and I think he, he can bring that to something that's much less dire and actually much less low stakes, like the slam race. Way, way lower stakes than trying to support your family. And, you know, the second thing that kind of ties into that is just the underdog mentality. The fact that Djokovic was not really expected for, for many years, was not expected to be a player. And it was King Federer, King Nadal. And these are, you know, those were the players at the top of the men's game. And everyone else was secondary. And Djokovic was, was the rival, the third guy, the third wheel. And Djokovic didn't really accept that. And it was a long road back. And I don't think until until 2019, maybe 2018, that was when people realized that Djokovic was not going to go away forever. He was back. And the, the stranglehold that Federer and Nadal had on the slam race was just non-existent. And Djokovic was coming. And he's finally... Um, He's done it, and he's equaled them to at, at 20. And I just think it's an underdog story, which is so rare at this level. I'm talking about an all-time great, a legend, someone whose accomplishments in the sport are unsurpassed by anyone, yet somehow feels like an underdog story. That's so unique about Novak Djokovic. And again, when it comes to his upbringing, same thing. It's an underdog. It's, uh, it's someone who was not set up really to succeed at all. There were not really professional tennis players who were successful from Serbia. Uh, he did not have great financial resources. Things were not looking up. The odds were stacked against him, and he made it happen. And I just think that there, uh, there are a lot of parallels that can be drawn when it comes to Novak Djokovic's career if you just look back to his childhood. So that's kind of the point I, I want to make about 20 and the record. And again, I'm really looking forward to the U.S. Open. I mean, um, obviously, there's a long way to go until we get there, uh, but it's going to be super, super exciting. So I hope you guys uh, enjoyed this one. Again, I, I didn't get I couldn't get as granular in the point by point um, because I, um, I can't take that time right now. I got to keep things moving um, because things are, are very, very busy. I am on a nocturnal sleep schedule as well. Um, so. Um, sorry to keep everyone waiting. Uh, thank you for your understanding. Again, um, if you're new to the channel, it doesn't always look like this. I'm not always in a hotel room. Uh, but you should subscribe, like the video, leave a comment. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Gil underscore Gross. I'm available on all podcast platforms as well. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts. Yes.